ambassador, uh, like all ambassadors of, of Iraq and other countries, uh, has been profoundly different than the ones that preceded uh, him or her, uh, because we have had uh, outstanding uh, Iraqi women uh, diplomats in this city who've helped uh, Iraq and helped us to understand Iraq uh, a lot. Uh, but his preparation, I think, is probably different than any of the other uh, existing Arab ambassadors of those elsewhere from the Middle East and the Islamic world. Uh, Ponder, for example, uh, the following. He's a physicist. Uh, I should say, I think, a man named Albert Einstein was described like that, too. So if you, you come in a, a long line of great uh, uh, people there, uh, with MIT background and elsewhere, um, he got his education in the United States and in Europe, and uh, on graduation, he was a researcher and uh, researched at leading uh, U.S. and European uh, universities before. In uh, July of 2004, joining Iraq's Ministry of Foreign Affairs and became the head of the uh, policy planning uh, uh, council. Uh, which is a uh, position of great trust and someone who's not to be burdened down with the day-to-day -day exigencies of domestic and international affairs, but uh, rather looking down the road. And, um, a lot of your questions that I've read uh, are that way, too. Uh, so uh, looking forward to how much we can learn uh, here today. Uh, he's been here since November of 2016. Uh, prior to that, he was Iraq's ambassador to France, and uh, prior to that, he was advisor to the uh, deputy president, uh, Abdul uh, Mahdi. And before all of that, he became an activist, as so many Iraqis who were abroad uh, became uh, in the vein of human rights uh, prior to coming into the official formal uh, political uh, arena. Uh, we have a real treat today from uh, uh, the Iraqi ambassador for Jesse, Mr. Ambassador. Well, thank you, Dr. Matthew. Uh, I can assure you that we can pass it. If it were warranted, I'd still be a physicist. <laughs> Anyway, thank you very much. I really appreciate this invitation. Uh, you founded the Antonio Forum. The topics that you discuss are uh, both important and relevant and topical. Uh, before I start, I'd like to recognize a few people in the audience. Uh, you mentioned, sir, uh, activists uh, in the 1990s. There's one sitting right here, Dr. Zuhair Kamadi, who is, in, in many ways, my mentor. Uh, we used to uh, across Washington trying to get people to do the right thing by Iraq. He then became the Secretary General of the uh, Council of Ministers under the uh, Alawi Premiership and then started something that was absolutely fantastic and I think one of the elements that I would like to see more of in our bilateral relations with the United States which is a uh, scholarship program that brought more than uh, 2,000 Iraqis close to get their master's and PhDs. Uh, then I, I had a cousin sitting lurking there in the 
background. Uh, you know, he's I think six foot four, so people who see us standing together might not think that we're related, but we definitely are as a person doesn't process so it's good to see. Uh, there are many other friends here, uh, Dr. Hoppe, who I have the pleasure, pleasure of printing behind the Madrid conference in 2003, which was the first reconstruction conference set up for Iran. And there are many others, and forgive me if I can, because if I started mentioning all of you, I won't have enough time to say anything about the topic of Iraq, which uh, in itself is not an easy thing to do because Iraq is a complex and complicated country in a complex and complicated environment with a complex and complicated history. Uh, and so, uh, you know, there are many different ways of uh, approaching this issue. And I want to simplify this by saying that I've got to focus on what, where we stand now and the road ahead. And then maybe mention a few things from the past, uh, but all of that focusing on the topic at hand, which is uh, our relationships with the United States. Um, so Iraq is a complex country. Yeah, Iraq is uh, a country that is uh, bordered between uh, geographic regions, uh, cultural regions. I often uh, compare it to Switzerland in the sense that it sits uh, astride uh, different uh, ethnic and sectarian groups, and itself, as a country, is made up of different ethnic and sectarian groups. And uh, I think this uh, analogy is warranted because uh, I think the policies that were developed by the Swiss during the 17th and 18th centuries are very, very applicable to us. What, why, what do I mean by that? Well, Switzerland is a neutral country. The question is, why is it neutral? It's because all the wars of the 17th and 18th century in Europe were either sectarian or, uh, or ethnic. And so if Switzerland were to take part in any of these wars, it would have been torn apart by its uh, inner tensions because precisely it is a, a, a mixed, complicated country. And uh, that is the case of Iran. We have extensions into Iran, into Syria, into Saudi Arabia, into Turkey, tribal, ethnic, uh, religious. Uh, and, and so if we were to decide in any of the conflicts of uh, the region, uh, we would be torn apart. And so the only policy that we can have is one of proactive neutrality, where we will seek to bring people together. And we have been able to do that in certain uh, segments of our past. I will mention uh, specifically the late 40s, early 50s, when uh, the Baghdad Pact was uh, It was not for nothing, but it was called the Baghdad Pact, and it regrouped Iran and Turkey and uh, countries, but the basic element was that Baghdad was, was, was the center, center of the world. And in order for us to do that, we need to accomplish a few things. Uh, for you to be able to uh, accomplish and carry out policy of active neutrality, proactive neutrality in a region like ours, just like Switzerland, you need to have strong institutions, defense institutions, civil institutions. In order for you to establish your own sovereignty over your, your own affairs. Otherwise, people will be trying to push you around. And this is exactly what the Iraqi government is trying to do. We are trying to rebuild our institutions and strengthen our own sovereignty through alliances, through friendships, but always balanced. And I'll give you an example of that. Uh, just recently, uh, we had a series of visits. The Iranian president came to Baghdad just after 
a few days afterwards, uh, the Iraqi Prime Minister went to Egypt to meet with President Sisi and King Abdullah. A couple of days after that, we had a huge, a huge delegation of Saudi businessmen come to Baghdad. Then the, uh, the Prime Minister actually went to Iraq, and then he went to France and then Germany. Actually, we, we had hoped that he would be coming to the United States and everything, but calendars didn't work out. And we're still hoping that he would be here in, in the near future. So this sort of balanced relationship with, with all our neighbors is one of the things that is a constant uh, of, of our foreign policy. Another element that is, that is a constant of our foreign policy is that we want it to be a war of foreign policy. We have suffered uh, from uh, too long when countries uh, paid attention just to the exigencies of bottom line uh, witnessed their support, the world's support for Saddam Hussein during the 1980s and even before that. Uh, so moral issues count very much for us and this is most apparent in the constant attitude that we've had as Iraq towards the Palestinian issue. That is one of the constants of Iraq foreign policy. Nobody will waver uh, from that. We stand behind the Palestinians and uh, for example, they are the persons, they are the, just like uh, one of the one of the points that I was going to say is that one of the things we, and it was alluded to, people look at us through the prism of the relationships with other countries. Um, I think with regard to the Palestinians, they should be at the center of the issue. They should be the voice that, that should be heard. And like I said, we stand entirely behind them. Um, with the United States, uh, our relationship has been uh, uh, more than it was in the last few years. Um, one of the things that people don't know is the important role that Americans have had in Iraqi education. Um, in 2004, Dexter Filkins, one of the most interesting journalists of his generation, wrote a article for the New York Times called Boys of Baghdad College Vie for Iraqi Premiership. Baghdad College was a school founded by American Jesuits in the 1930s, and the three uh, politicians he was referring to were Adel Abumendi, Abichelli, and Alaoui. Uh, two of them eventually became prime ministers. Um, um, right now, we are discussing uh, the foundation of the American University in Baghdad, and there is already one in over the last 20 years, however, our relationship has been uh, essentially driven by security considerations. Uh, exacerbated by the fact that we have had to fight to liberate uh, our territory from ISIS. And we have. And don't ever underestimate the the size of the accomplishments that we that we achieved. Um, in order for you to be able to appreciate that or to apprehend it, you have to have been in my shoes in 2014 when when Mosul fell. I mean, it felt like everything was collapsing. But the lesson of of, of this of this entire uh, is that Iraq has its own resources and. Indeed, it was liberated, but it was liberated by the blood and toil and bravery of 
its own soldiers who responded to the call of our religious authorities to stop the waves of ISIS attacking Baghdad, attacking uh, airfield. And of course, I cannot discount with all the support that, uh, that the coalitions, uh, the coalition set up by the United States gave us. Really critical. My belief is that we would have been able still to, to, to deliver, to, to liberate our country without the help of outsiders. It would have cost us much more in time and blood and effort. So uh, I cannot, but you know, I have to express my gratitude to, to the United States and the International Coalition. At this point, though, we are engaged in dealing with the aftermath of the war against ISIS, essentially. Reconstruction effort, which is not only economic uh, or in terms of infrastructure. We have to, like I said, work on strengthening our institutions. We have to repair uh, uh, the damages of the war. Um, one of the critical elements that we will have to deal with, and that's something uh, for which we will need the help. Well, is to deal with the ISIS survivors, all those children that have been uh, subjected to five years of ISIS brainwashing. This is uh, a looming problem uh, that will be with us for years to come that needs to be dealt with, with intelligence and uh, with the appropriate resources. And uh, when I say that we need the help of the international community, uh, I, I tell that one other point. Don't think of this in terms of international aid. Think of this in terms of defense commitments. Because ISIS and its ideology is a global threat. And we are at the front lines and we know what we're talking about. Um, at this point, I am very confident in our enduring uh, uh, partnership with the United States. The Iraqi government wants Iraq to be a good partner. These are goods uh, from the Prime Minister himself. Not only with the United States, but with all our neighbors uh, and uh, international partners. Um, and we will be. And we would like to see the United States take an even greater role in, in helping us in the reconstruction of Iraq in the years to come. Now, I don't want to paint a too rosy a picture. We do have a serious problem that we have to deal with. Um, one of the problems that don't often get addressed uh, as much as they should be is corruption. It's a serious problem. Um, what I can tell you is that the Iraqi government is aware of it and taking steps to address it, uh, even technical steps like the adoption of uh, new uh, national standards against corruption will help. Um, another problem is uh, what's alluded to earlier, uh, the tensions between the United States and the Islamic Republic of Iran. Our position has always been uh, to try to reduce tensions uh, in the area. Dialogue is the only way to resolve problems like this, especially because uh, I am fearful of any slippages that would uh, cost all of us uh, more than we are willing to pay. Um, so caution here is, is advised to everybody. Um, our history, uh, when, when people talk about the relationships between the United States and, and Iraq, 
they talk about the mistakes. Um, they talk about 2003 being the biggest mistake ever. Bill Burns expressed that recently in the talk he gave. He's one of the most eloquent diplomats I've ever seen, but i otherwise. Uh, I have a different view. I think the biggest mistake that was committed by the United States was to let Saddam get out of the war with the means to quell the uprising. It has cost us dearly in blood, and we only discovered that. Actually, we knew, but the world discovered that in 2003 when they dug up all those mass graves in the south of Iraq. Um, that's why I think that, you know this this focus on the world diplomacy is really so important. Um, but we often overlook the great successes that the United States had with regard to Iraq. People do not know that the first industrial development program for Iraq was developed by an American firm, a legendary firm, uh, Arthur D. Little, and their uh, uh, campus up in Northern Cambridge, uh, Massachusetts. I gave them a visit when they were still there, as a matter of fact. And you, you can do a quick search and find it uh, on the internet. Uh, it really has some of the elements that became the backbone of the Iraqi economy. And still some elements yet to be built, so it might be good to revive it. One of them was, uh, I think, the uh, uh, building of uh, Baghdad University, which is a testament to the Hospital because it was designed by Walter Brooks at the time, was the dean of the Harvard School. I can mention many, many other examples. I was talking to uh, Dr. Anthony, he being a physicist, um, that the uh, Department of Physics uh, back at University was uh, founded by uh, the father of the uh, Walden singer, John Baez, who spent a year in Baghdad and wrote a delightful book about it. Uh, and so it, it, really, all those little nuggets of information can be helpful to show that you can have much, much, much more uh, significant relationship uh, between Iraq and the United States, which is now in a situation different than it has all ever been because there is an important Iraqi diaspora in the United States that is becoming increasingly active. Uh, recently, I had to look at the numbers when uh, the, uh, uh, our electoral commission came to the United States to try to set up electoral bureaus, we contacted the Census Bureau. Now their numbers indicated there were some like 260,000 Iraqi-born individuals. I don't want to have the... I, I, I should have avoided mentioning the Census. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, uh, but anyway, they, 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 they were very rigorous. There were 260,000 Iraqis uh, born, Iraqi-born individuals in the United States. So if you took that, we were to count them to have, you know, second generation, third generation, uh, taking into account that Iraqi families tend to be rather large, um, where somewhere between a million and a million and a half, that's not nothing, located in key uh, sections of the country. Um, and uh, they, mashallah, uh, as we say, are doing pretty good. Um, and I actually, through this one, I'm going to try to start visiting them as, uh, as often as I can. And my urging to them, is I want them to be the best Americans they can you know, be very happy. There is one Iraqi, uh, uh, she's not Iraqi-born, but I think her mother's Iraqi member of Congress, uh, like I see senators, 
customers. And I know that there are, at this point, uh, several of the Iraqi board uh, young men who are at the State Department and the Defense Department. And they were still in the White House. So I'm very hopeful, looking forward to an increasing and broader uh, relationship between the United States and Iraq and Australia. here is um, uh, Tapuk, and I will alternate back and forth on asking questions and because they are uh, quite numerous but uh, everyone that I've read is relevant some thought-provoking that uh, I think it'd be uh, productive if I read several of them in a sequence, uh, just to get the adrenaline going, Mr. Ambassador. And then um, you can respond to the ones you care to address uh, at greater or less of length. And uh, Colonel Dahoub uh, uh, will do the same. Uh, appointed, and um, it's been a runoff, and we're looking for the chairs to come in any minute uh, there. So uh, we don't know what the outcome will be. Um, but consultation and consensus is uh, uh, age-old value tradition and, and political institution and process, and uh, uh, we try to practice it when we can. You have been practicing it longer than we have. Uh, but uh, back to Jefferson again, when people asked, you talked so much about uh, democracy, and yet uh, we've never seen you or anyone else define it. Um, would you define it in a phrase, if you could, please? And he wrote down, he simply said, it's the uh, consent of the government. How's that for being pithy and incisive? And uh, how do you get consent? You through consultation. A consultation that's known, that's seen, that's above board, that takes into consideration uh, any and all who can be helped on earth, ended, uh, enhanced uh, by something that's being proposed. And through consultation, if you don't get consent, then you don't get to do so. You don't ram it down people's throats simply because you know that or you thought it was a good idea. So Iraq uh, has been the uh, cradle of uh, much in the way of civilization um, and the, the birthplace of a great body of ideas and principles and ideals from which not just the Iraqis have benefited, the region has benefited, uh, the world beyond has benefited. Other civilizations have uh, benefited, other cultures have benefited. Humanity has uh, benefited. Iraq is not a marginal participant or player in this. So, Colonel uh, uh, Dabuk, if you want to sort of read maybe four of them, or five of them, and, just, and you can choose whichever ones, and um, we'll have go here from our side, three, four, five of them, and proceed that way. Is that all right with you? Okay. Okay. I think I grouped uh, like, uh, two or three together. One first one is on oil, oil revenue. Uh, the first one says, uh, since 90% of Iraqi state revenues come from the oil sector, how is the government trying to diversify and grow its revenue? 
does revenue from petroleum reach the average Iraqi citizen? To what degree does this income support their standard of living? And the third on the same thing, how is, how is Iraq, uh, Iraq's government encouraging youth to create more startups and lower youth unemployment? This one set, and the other set here on, uh, you mentioned the, uh, the uh, Iraqi diaspora and their contribution in the United States. And also there's three related questions on the same. Uh, how can today's generation of Iraqi Americans help bridge the cultural and relationship gap between Iraq and the United States? What role can we play uh, coming from our perspective uh, of understanding both American and Iraqi culture? Second on the same, what is the best way for the United States to contribute to Iraq's institutional development moving forward? And if you could recommend three books that would help Americans better understand Iraq, what would they be? Thank you for this. So, uh, oil. Indeed, um, actually, uh, I, I looked at the uh, at some numbers yesterday, uh, and uh, oil represents 99.2% of uh, the imports that the United States has from Iraq. There's, you know, uh, some 0, 0.0 something percent in terms of antiquities, of handicrafts, art, it's nice. But it's essentially oil. Indeed, uh, that's, that's been our problem. And this is a problem that is not born of uh, today. Um, there was a time when, uh, during the 50s, where uh, Iraq's oil revenue did not contribute to Iraq's budget. In fact, the money went to a fund that was used to develop the projects that I mentioned, uh, such as those that were developed by the um, Arthur D. Little program. Uh, uh, and Iraq's revenues were derived from taxes on agricultural exports. So we were, we had a really thriving agriculture, you know, uh, and, and this guy's father actually benefited from that because they, they had, uh, they, were, they, were, they were plantation owners in the south of Iraq, right? Um, no, the joke aside, uh, uh, and, and this is something that I, that I, that I uh, would like to point out because uh, that state of things, that state of affairs, was used by an Iraqi expatriate uh, called Farouk al-Qasim to set up the Norwegian oil industry, and in particular their Fund for the Future. Um, uh, and you should, you should read, read up on it, it's a really nice story. But uh, for the time being, I mean, we have an overdependence on oil. We know that, we feel it. We're in a sense a banana republic, if you will, with a with a single commodity export. So when price oil prices go up, we feel good. When they go down, we feel bad. And just an anecdote: uh, a few years ago, when the current prime minister was oil minister, there was a, the price of oil went down, and then it went slightly up. So I was speaking to his assistant, and I said, "You know, tell the the, the minister that I hope." oil prices go up. So he says, please don't say that to him because he says that if they go up too fast, we will not take the measures necessary to make our economy better. 
we're fortunate in that Abdullah Abdul Mahdi is a first-rate economist, and he understands the needs of the need Iraq's need to diversify, and we're working on it. And uh, uh, we have been uh, helped this year by one example that I'll give you that shows what we're trying to do to diversify our economy. This year we had a bumper crop, bumper crop in wheat. And so uh, what the government did is bought all the proceeds, everything, all the, all the crop from, from farmers, paid them immediately so that they can go and invest in next year's uh, crops. And uh, they, uh, in fact, they had so much uh, wheat that they ran out of silo space. So what they do, <laughs> they, they, they took those T-walls that, you know, used to ring back that all over those uh, uh, concrete blocks because uh, they they were moving them from the from the from the streets and they turned them into circles connected them you know put some concrete on the floor and used these silos with you know tarpaulin to cover the, the grain and it doesn't rain in Iraq so it's not that's a good example of you know economies of scope and uh, what uh, what uh, what many was thinking of doing is using these this grain to give to farmers and to uh, People want to start agribusinesses or pastry shops, food businesses. Uh, in in some sense, uh, sort of a grain-based Keynesian intervention. To and it's and it's actually not a bad thing to do because these activities are very labor-intensive. Um, so um, just to give you an idea that, that we are very much uh, attuned to the fact that uh, we need to diversify our economy uh, and that we need to provide employment to our youth. Youth bulges is a really big, uh, big problem. Um, on on how Iraq's oil income is going to is, is helping the Iraqis. Well, it is definitely in two ways. First of all, we have the remnants of the oil for food program, uh, which is a, a, a ration card that provides basic essentials to all Iraqi families that want it. Uh, so, uh, grain, sugar, basic commodities. Uh, to ensure that they have at least, uh, you know, a calorie intake that is sufficient. And then uh, there is, uh, unfortunately, uh, a huge wage bill. Uh, I think uh, when uh, uh, when regime change took place, uh, the Iraqi government counted some like 600,000 employees receiving salaries, and now the number is close to 6 million. That's a, that's a real problem. It needs to be addressed. But it's just to show you that uh, that uh, that the oil money is going, you know, in many ways to the people. Um, on on whether uh, we want to, uh, how we can help Iraqi youth into the startup environment. Well, uh, you have to realize where we came from. Uh, up to 2003, typewriters had to be fingerprinted in Iraq. You know. Uh, so, I mean, in other words, you take a piece of paper, you type a few sentences, and then they take it and store it in the police headquarters so that if you were to develop, you know, political pamphlets, they can track you down. And then the internet came. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, it dawned on me once I was visiting my cousin, and his uh, two-year-old granddaughter came to him holding her iPad and said, Grandpa, I can't connect. <laughs> you know, she's maybe three. I was so that there is a there, the, the you know Iraqi youth have taken to the internet to social media, uh, uh, maybe to a fault, like fish to water, uh, and so uh, 
there are attempts, really interesting ones, to get them to develop uh, uh, jobs and startups through these new technologies. There is uh, one startup uh, funded uh, partly by the central bank and another uh, entrepreneur here uh, called Mahata, the station, which were you to visit it, you know, and close the doors, you wouldn't know where you were. Cambridge, Massachusetts, or I don't know, um, you know, Silicon Valley, uh, except you know, um, uh, girls are wearing aren't wearing shorts. But that's but the ideas are fantastic. There was one uh, I mentioned it to you: the young Iraqis who wanted to uh, take a consolidate um, the use of random palm dates, palm palm trees. In Baghdad, so you enter into an agreement. Palm dates are really messy. You know, the uh, dates are sticky. It needs a lot of care. So they would come to an agreement with you. They give you. They take care of your uh, of your tree, and then they uh, take part of the uh, the crop, and then they'd give you some. And uh, so there are a lot of lot of, lot of really um, interesting ideas that uh, that can um, on on the role of the diaspora. Boy, everything is possible. Uh, what I urge you first to do is visit. You know, go see for yourself. Um, you don't need a visa if you're uh, of you're, you're Iraqi origin. I think go to the to the uh, to the airport. They'll let you check with the consulate first. So, um, you'll feel welcome. I mean, in in Iraq, you know, the sense of extended family is very, very, very important. So you'll have um, friends and relatives there, and they'll welcome you. And you can uh, be a bridge between uh, many of the uh, uh, between the needs of the country and uh, the uh, organizations, institutions in the world that can provide it. Multinationals, uh, international organizations, and as such. And uh, I, I have to tell you, I was a member of the diaspora. In fact, uh, I had to turn in my a green card to take this job. Um, so uh, you, you you have a role to play, uh, and I, I would urge you to uh, do all you can to, to play. Oh, best books! Oh my God! Um, the nicest book you can find uh, that will explain Iraq to you is called Al Baghdadi. Okay, um, it's dear to me because these were the memoirs of the uh, Baghdad, the uh, Boston College Jesuits, who went to start Baghdad College. It's out of print, but you can find it's reprinted on Amazon. And uh, it was written in 1936, but it gives you a, a vision of an Iraq that is still there, of um, you know, tolerant, open-minded, uh, uh, welcoming, uh, interesting, hopeful Iraq. Uh, in terms of politics, I think there are quite a few other books that one can mention. One of the best authors is Dr. Phoebe Marr. Uh, I think you can... Uh, can't go wrong by looking at her book. Of course, I have to tell you, I know I, I've never read, but I've never read them. So. <laughs> I mean, I've lived through, of course, and I have them in my library. But uh, but there are there's there's no shortage of good books on All right, that's great. Um, I think Mamar has been a speaker at uh, many of the national councils. Uh, annual Arab-U.S. policymakers conferences, and you're right. Um, 
she is the, the, the dean of the Doyen of American Specialists on Iraq uh, over the course of her extraordinarily productive uh, career. Sorry, another one would be by Charles Tripp. Really Charles Tripp, as British, yes. Ajit Kaduri, maybe. Of course. Yes. And, 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 and Hannah Batatu actually has Hannah Batatu. Hannah Batatu wrote a book that's really interesting. I feel you want to relate an anecdote which you find in this book. It's a book about the history of the Communist Party to show you the depth of the interaction between the United States and and, uh, and Iraq. There's a diagram in that book that shows the affiliation of the Iraqi Communist Party, uh, which was created by the merger of four groups, two of which originated in the 1920s at MIT uh, by two students. Uh, uh, graduated and were, of course, uh, affected by the social and, uh, you know, upheavals uh, of the, the Depression. And uh, they both went back to Iraq. One transited through Spain, where he fought uh, alongside the Lincoln Brigades against Franco, and then ended his career becoming the chief engineer of Iraq's National Railways in the 1950s and 60s. And the other, I'm not sure, I think, but went uh, through France, where he uh, got a PhD in, in laws and may have uh, contributed to the fight against uh, the, the Germans, and then went back to Iraq. So, um, I mean, there, there you can, it's, it's a deep relationship, much deeper than what people think. Oh, yes, that's fascinating. The date of Elizabeth Ferdinand, the events that uh, get to her face in the middle of the 50s when her husband was doing his PhD on uh, rural Iraq and she lived for two years in a very primitive you know, uh, village in the southern part of Iraq. It's a fascinating book, The Guest of the Sheep. You can find it in most bookstores, Amazon for sure. It's long been a paperback. Hundreds of thousands of copies uh, have been sold. Uh, and she's passed away as uh, as her husband. Her husband was a charismatic, Bill uh, McEntry type of guy. <coughs> but uh, she was she became the star. Uh, Elizabeth Warnock Fernier. B.J. Fernier, to those uh, who loved him most. Oh, if I may, one more. Yes. It's called um, The Marsh Arabs uh, by Wilfred Thesiger, who was, I think, one of the greatest explorers of the 20th century. And I mention them because their uh, uh, ecosystem was, um, in fact, aggressed heavily by uh, Saddam in what uh, some UN, Mark Max von der Stoll, a former Dutch foreign minister, called the environmental crime, crime of the 20th century. But now it's being uh, thankfully restored. All of these uh, uh, foundational uh, books for uh, knowledge and understanding about Iraq um, are three. Another theme, except for Tripp's book, is that they uh, all, uh, prior to the 19, mid-1960s, uh, Tripp's is, is more, more modern. Um, and that says something, and it doesn't say something. Oh, sorry, I, uh, I forgot something. I'm, I'm 
really, really important book, uh, which uh, I would have been remiss not to mention, because uh, the author is a really good friend of mine. It's Republic of Fear. And uh, uh, if you don't read it, uh, you don't understand what Iran went through, which really is necessary to. The author is Kanan Makia. When he wrote it, he was so afraid that he had to use a pseudonym, Samir Ali. Well, these would be your um, baker's dozen, so to speak, of books that would be your uh, basic uh, library. You couldn't go wrong. If you read uh, all of those, two-thirds of them, you'd be able to hold your own that conversation to a greater degree than if you don't do so. Um, and what it does say is how serious and strong were those scholarly um, pioneers. This was by and large before air conditioning. Okay? And before uh, the internet, and people wrote by longhand on uh, legal pads if they did that. So uh, they're the more remarkable still. But uh, what it doesn't say is that this long period from June 67 until really uh, the spring of 1983, <coughs> America was bereft serious empirical scholarship about Iraq, about people who lived and worked there, who knew it from the inside out and not from the outside in, who saw it for what it was, uh, people who were actors with their own legitimate needs, legitimate rights, legitimate concerns, legitimate goals, in addition, of course, being uh, objects, uh, as you were mentioning, objects of other people's quest to manipulate to influence, to control Iraq's resources, dominate its policies, uh, incline its leaders uh, this direction or the other. Uh, so yes, that part is uh, is a barren field of the scholars from that long period, June 67 to the spring of uh, 83. And even after that, on the best of days, when they were all there, uh, April Glassby, uh, David Newsom, Marshall Wiley, some of you know all three of them as do we. Um, not more than 17 Americans in the country, and they were all there on the same day, 17. Okay. May I just make two yes. comments, if I may? Uh, one more book that I'd like to mention is uh, uh, Ali Alawi's uh, Winning the War, Losing the Peace. Uh, it explains quite, quite well uh, some of the uh, conundrums that we ran into. Post, uh, post the kinetic uh, phase of the conflict. Um, I think that's, that's important to mention. Right, he's an echo of, uh, of our system. Um, and we talk about democracy twice in 16 years. Here, the person who got the most votes lost. And uh, mm -hmm. a, a lobby. Uh, Likewise. Uh, no, that's different. Hey. Different lobby. Uh, I know, <laughs> I know the family uh, there. That's right. Uh, hey, you're quite right. Different family. The book is. Is one thing, but the uh, the individual who did so well in the elections did not come out on top uh, with regard to the power and the authority. Uh, we leaned towards someone who didn't get as many votes, and uh, many people think that was a place for that. Sure. Uh, these questions are all related to Iran in some way, uh, and Iraq, and America's role in it or not in it. Um, Iraq has stated they will not be a launch pad for attacks against Iran. However, would Iraq be open to help mediate the conflict? And if so, how? Because others are 
aspiring to play a role of some kind in that regard. Uh, also, uh, how could Iraq uh, maintain a neutral position in the U.S.-Iran conflict if the United States attacked uh, uh, Iran? I mean, given uh, the so-called coffin trade of the many Iranians who want to be buried in uh, Iraq and the traffic back and forth, those who want to visit the uh, Shia shrines coming from Iran, tell me if I'm wrong, only one of the 12 Imams uh, on the Shia Imam scale buried uh, uh, in Iran have a Mashad al only one of the 12, the others in Iraq, I believe, and Saudi Arabia uh, and, uh, there. So, uh, Iran and Iraq uh, join at the hip. Uh, not, not a question of choice. Geography cannot change. Um, so how could Iraq maintain a neutral position in the conflict, given the geography, given the demography, given the politics, the Iran influence control uh, militias uh, inside of Iraq, um, given the no one's mentioned the Green Zone, where the United States and Iraq are cheap by jowl and that many of their ministries, policymakers, decision makers, uh, will work every day behind a wall <coughs> to a compound. And uh, the image of that is one of corrosion or erosion of national sovereignty. And what if uh, there was uh, a wall on Capitol Hill inside of which uh, were the people who invaded the United States. Uh, it's a provocative question, okay? But it has uh, implications. Easily answered. In the event the U.S. goes to war with Iraq, Iran, how would Iraq respond to the large number of refugees that logically would enter Iraqi territory? Uh, and given Iraq's position and its current relations with Iran, how do you think Iraq uh, could help facilitate the de-escalation of U.S. tensions with Iran, I guess so. What are your thoughts on the escalating tensions with Iran? They're all Iran-centric with one last one about the United States. To what degree has it been successful in providing security against uh, uh, threats such as ISIS in the aftermath of curtailing uh, ISIS's uh, position role Anything else? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, there are half a dozen all running around together. Uh, uh, let, let, me start, let me start with the issue of the, the green zone. Yes. So one of the uh, first things that Adam Mendy did, did which uh, played greatly in his favor, is, is the day he was uh, appointed, he went around and looked back out outside of the green zone and found a smaller uh, sort of a uh, conference hall that had been completely neglected over the last 15 years. And uh, he brought in the engineering teams and said, how long would it take you to restore this? And they said six weeks. And he said, in two weeks, I want to have my first council of ministers here, outside of the Green Zone. And so, uh, and so uh, gradually, uh, but surely, uh, you have seen uh, T-walls uh, removed. Uh, then a decision was made to open the uh, green zone uh, at night. And 
which made the owners of the Rashid Hotel really happy, you know, because they were, you know. Um, uh, and then more recently, I think uh, it's, it's opened around the clock, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, so uh, the Green Zone is uh, shrinking, if you will. Of course, there is, uh, I mean, it has to be realistic. There still are protections against uh, key points, embassies, things like that, but just like uh, you know, you don't have uh, T walls uh, in, in Washington, D.C., and you never have them. But uh, you know, you can't access the State Department uh, uh, now the way we used to. Dr. Zahir Mugger in the 1990s, just walk up and walk in. So this, this is this is a, a really welcome change, and it's uh, it's resonating with the population. On what the United States can do to help us um, uh, in our war against uh, ISIS, oh, they can help uh, immensely. Uh, uh, first of all, one has to realize, and of course, I, I speak under the control of uh, Colonel Daoud, you know. <laughs> know much more about this than I do. Um, uh, the, the nature of the beast has changed. Uh, uh, at first, uh, uh, ISIS became a territorial force, and the great achievement of the Iraqi armed forces was that they, they were, we were able to take away from them this territorial control. So they have no safe havens for them to sit down and plot, uh, you know, explosions in Paris or Brussels and places like that, or Baghdad for that matter. Um, but you still have sleeper cells. You still have people funding them. You still you still have uh, uh, you know a, a, a really poisonous uh, ideology that we have to confront. And so as, as we move we move as a change of phase from uh, sort of military confrontation to one in terms of security, where intelligence and counterterrorism are the are the tools of the trade. And uh, this is something that is honed well, you know, by the United States and the Iraqis in the uh, sort of 2009 period where people developed uh, so-called fusion cells to see how best to address this problem. And they were able, for example, in a very short order to drop the number of, um, of uh, car bombs uh, in Baghdad by 90%. So these are skills that we need. Of course, uh, the technical team, technical means of intelligence that the United States has at their disposal uh, is incredible, and I think we will continue to benefit from that. Our specialized agencies, in fact, are, are collaborating very, very well. So uh, this is something that we need to, uh, to continue to work on. Um, with regard to the military, uh, of course, uh, there also is an evolution. Uh, the uh, uh, sort of an, uh, arrangements that we had in the fight against ISIS were uh, so-called advise and assist, uh, which did not, which required an involvement of the uh, United States forces present in Iraq, which were just as fractional that they were in 2009, seven or nine, maybe 3%. To uh, a train and equip role. So there's an evolution there. Um, on what we can do to uh, try to ease tensions between the United States and Iran, well, this has always been, you know, a constant of our policy, like I said earlier. Um, I remember I actually sat in a meeting where, uh, where, um, the Iranians 
sent a delegation to meet with the Americans. Um, the delegation was headed by Ryan Crocker at the time to discuss issues about Iraq. It was a single meeting, but it was, you know, we set it up, it took place. Um, I don't know what, what followed, but um, the fact that it took place shows that it is possible to do things like that. Uh, and then there's another achievement that we that we're actually quite proud of. In 2012, one of the rounds of the uh, nuclear negotiations that eventually led to the JCPOA, uh, which we're in favor of, as a matter of fact, um, uh, took place in Baghdad. Uh, at the time, I was the ambassador to France, and uh, one of my uh, colleagues, uh, I think an Arab ambassador, I won't say what, what country, told me, well, I went to speak with the uh, French delegate, and he really poo pooed here. I thought this was not going to be, you know, something significant. But when he came back, he came back really impressed. Uh, because at that meeting, we had two people uh, who could really push things forward uh, on the issue. One was Hushar Zabari, who is, uh, you know, as seasoned a foreign minister as I've ever seen. And Hussein Sharastani, a friend of mine, Dr. Omadis who uh, had been a nuclear chemist uh, who had uh, refused to work on Saddam's nuclear program and therefore spent 11 years in the Lorraine. So this is something that we can do. Um, on what we can do now, well, uh, we stand ready, but uh, you have to understand that these things are better dealt with very discreetly, okay? So the less I say about them, the better. Oh, one thing I wanted to say uh, that I that I really overlooked. Um, one of the big successes of Iraq is uh, the way we've developed our uh, oil industry. And uh, at this present time, we are the second producer in OPEC, the second exporter in OPEC. And uh, we uh, stand ready to even improve that much more uh, if only international oil companies were a little more understanding. <laughs> <laughs> You're a friend, I think. Thank you. Yeah, uh, from Exxon, which is a great yeah, yeah, yeah. We haven't talked about the uh, uh, Kurds yeah. part, right? And uh, the Kurds. Uh, uh, a couple of questions, and uh, well, I have more uh, systemic. One, to be honest. Yes. Well, first of all, the question I have is what has been Ayatollah Sistani's response to growing tensions between the U.S. and Iraq? On the back of Iraq, yeah, but specifically what's his, uh, uh, his response to that? You want to explain to some of the novice, maybe, who Ayatollah Sistani is? On the Kurdish, the last name, the hook, a lot of people think that being in Europe, people see the, see the name on the uniform and said, hey, I've been to your town, the hot, they know where I am. Are you Kurdish? He said, well, I'm not Kurdish, I'm Lebanese, it's Tabuk versus Dohak. So this is my Kurdish connection. Maybe I'll, I'm eligible for a free visa. Lebanese are all sorts, what are you? Mount uh, so the questions are on uh, how do the aspirations of the Kurdish regional government create challenges in Iraq's domestic and foreign policy? Does the state of Iraq hope to integrate the KRG uh, or leave it autonomous? What role do the Kurds have in the current government? Do you foresee the role changing in the future? 
Well, uh, some people tried to change it. And, uh, I opposed it. Um, we were, um, I think we were bound by a constitution. Um, people overlook the fact that a constitution is a binding contract. Uh, and uh, the constitution that we voted on, which was uh, agreed to by 80% of the Iraqi population, uh, was voted overwhelmingly in favor for, in favor of, um, by the three uh, governorates um, making up um, the KRG uh, at percentages of over 95%. So that's a commitment. Okay. Um, this country went to war to preserve its constitution. We don't want to go there, of course, but um, to us it's not something that is, um, um, that is light or to be taken lightly. There are also, um, you know, geopolitical realities that one has to take into account. Um, do you think Iran would agree to having an independent uh, Kurdish state? Do you think Turkey would? No, I think uh, rather than carving uh, new borders, uh, drawing them on the, on the map, I think the best way forward for us, and this does not only apply to Iraq, but to the region as a whole, is to try to make these borders irrelevant by greater integration through economics, through cultural activities, building on what we have in common rather than what separates us. And believe me, we have a lot in common. I mean, uh, if I look at the commonalities we have compared to what the Europeans had in the 1960s when they started the EEC, I mean, it's, uh, it's obvious. Um, nevertheless, uh, the Kurds have a very, very active role in, in Iraq. Um, currently, uh, the uh, status of the KRG is constitutionally recognized. Um, the Iraqi constitution actually allows for mechanisms for other parts of the country to develop structures similar to that of the KRG. None have taken it so far. There's been some talk about this in Basra other places, but I hope that that'll be the decision of the people from Basra. Uh, uh, but right now, we have an arrangement where I think, uh, which is conducive to reaching a consensus. So when the Iraqi government was formed, uh, of course we chose uh, Maharam Saleh as president. And he is, uh, I think, one of the uh, uh, Kurdish politicians who has the greatest popularity amongst, uh, amongst uh, all of Iraq. Uh, in fact, I'm an Arab, but everybody in my extended family loves it, you know, and he's a very charismatic uh, politician, as you know. Um, and then, within the cabinet, uh, when the Iraqi Prime Minister formed it, he gave one of the key positions to a key player in, in the KRG, uh, Dr. Fouad Hussein, who had been the uh, Chief of Staff of uh, Resident Barzani, um, and who uh, received the um, Ministry of Finance portfolio. Uh, but he not only received that, he was made Deputy Prime Minister. And so the, the Iraqi cabinet was not designed haphazardly. Uh, 
it, it has a very strong technocratic component uh, that takes into account the various reality distributions of the of, of the Iraqi um, uh, of Iraq and the different political tensions within each group. Uh, so, for example, there was a quick consensus on Dr. Fouad Hussein, but there were some issues regarding the appointment of one more uh, Kurdish politician which was resolved just recently with our new Minister of Justice is Kurdish. These are regalian ministries, they're not nothing. But the, the two key appointments in the Iraqi cabinet uh, for us are the Minister of Oil and Minister of uh, Finance. One brings in the money, the other distributes it. Okay. And, and the, 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 the Prime Minister in his wisdom actually appointed these two uh, as Deputy Prime Ministers. So whenever you have uh, They'll have, you know, the the, the, the strongest say in, in, in various committees, and they get along very, very well. And so I, I feel confident that uh, you know the the relations with uh, the KRG are going to be uh, enduring. Okay, there are some issues uh, that I can't uh, overlook, but these are these are uh, the uh, remnants of the uh, um, fog of ISIS occupation uh, that I think will be resolved in. Very near future. Uh, Ayatollah Sistani uh, is uh, uh, of the quietest school. Uh, he, uh, his theory is that you have to uh, uh, separate, you know, the uh, religious institution from the political institution. Not so much in order not to uh, weigh in on. On affairs, but rather just to protect the, um, uh, the religious institution and the reputation of the political institution of the religious institution from being tainted by by, by power and power corrupts, as you know. So that's his, so he is reluctant to make issue to make statements on political issues. Um, so far, <coughs> he has uh, made some. And, and, and his and his uh, his fatwas are um, are um, uh, are relevant to our everyday everyday life. Okay, but they're all relevant to Iraq. All relevant to Iraq, um, and of course um, the one big exception was when uh, he called for. Iraqis to stand up and fight in support of the armed forces to fight ISIS. His earlier involvement is, is quite significant also. He actually actually uh, forced the United States occupation authorities to make sure that the Iraqi constitution were written by elected Iraqi officials, not appointed Iraqi officials. Um, and uh, that's exactly what happened. Two more questions, and then we'll wrap it up. Can I say one more thing? Uh, I'm, 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 I'm really fortunate. I've, I've met uh, a lot of impressive people in my life. Uh, I think the most impressive person I have ever met is Ayatollah Sistema. There are people who've met him here. Uh, Zohair, if you want to add something. Zohair. Just, 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 just
Well, yeah, actually, uh, we, we met with uh, three uh, prominent uh, U.S. Um, scholars. Uh, um, actually, four. Gary Six, Gail Eichelman, uh, the recently credited uh, uh, Augustus Richard Norton, and uh, the head of the Jamestown Foundation, Glenn Howell. And uh, we, they met, so it was actually when we were at the church where they met with the scholars in Najaf. Uh, unfortunately, not with uh, Odantos Hassan because he's very picky on whom he meets. Huge number. And 
That's a huge, that, that's a, that's a huge number. And in fact, this number in reality is probably larger. The, these numbers are based on, uh, uh, on statistics provided by international organizations and, uh, and humanitarian organizations. Uh, but uh, as you know, we, we, we live in a society where extended family networks work very well. And so this does not take into account all those who sought refuge uh, at the houses of their cousins and distant relatives. So in reality, the, the, the number of people who had to leave their homes in Iraq because of what happened in 2014 and 15 is probably larger. Um, there has been a, a huge uh, effort to help people go back. I think the numbers uh, are drilling. I don't know the exact, exact number of people remaining uh, in, in camps. I think it's around um, 2 million or so, but about 4 million have gone back. Uh, the question is, what do they go back to? And so uh, the effort that has been, uh, that we've been focusing on was to provide them the security that's required and eventually the jobs that will keep them where they were. Um, Right now, we're lagging because certain places uh, that people have left, the houses have been entirely destroyed. I mean, think of East Mosul. Uh, and so this is one of the things that I was alluding to when I was talking about uh, the need to uh, help Iraq uh, you know, uh, achieve what it should achieve in terms of helping its, its population go back to where it, uh, to its original. Uh, and it, it's important because uh, uh, you know, the city like Mosul is historic, and its people are very, very attached to it. And so, uh, unless you know they, um, I mean, the, the statistics of the United that I've been shown was that if people pass a certain number of years away from their place of origin, then the odds of them going back really, really dwindle. So, essentially, we have to. But there's much to be done. Last one along those lines were that um, the media had a lot to say when the American-led forces um, entered Iraq that they sped past the uh, historic National Museum with its artifacts of inviolate uh, value to humanity and went straight instead to the Ministry of Petroleum, I think, and maybe Ministry of Finance. Um, regardless of what's happened to these priceless objects from which the world stood to learn much. Um, when uh, Saddam, Saddam's statue fell, we, I think all the Iraqis fell. When the museum was looted, we had a sense of responsibility that you cannot imagine. Um, um, Iraqis are very attached to their history. And in fact, you have no idea how much criticism I have received because we were unable to prevent the sale of a, a, a Syrian um, artifact in Sotheby's that sold for $34 million or something like that. There's nothing we could have done. But, but, Included us from doing anything, uh, but this is just to tell you how, how this, how important this issue is to us. And in fact, my my 
greatest success in this country, although I have nothing to do with it. It's one, it's, a, it's you know, a, 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 an American civil servant who was doing his job and discovered it. It was the retrieval of the Hobby Lobby 3,000 pieces of archaeology that uh, they acquired that, that had been smuggled and which they bought in Israel from the Emirates. And so now they're uh, in a safe place. And I'm hoping to put them on the Prime Minister's plane, Prime Minister's plane when it gets here so they can take them back. <laughs> I'll be now be a side relief. Yeah. Uh, but uh, uh, joking aside, the issue of, of artifacts is, is really important to us. Um, they're in, in, in the, uh, when the back, when the museum was looted, every, civil society picked up. There were calls by every single religious authority to return them. Most were returned. There are certain elements that are still lacking. We suspect that they were taken away by intent. Okay. Uh, so they're hiding somewhere as collectors. Stash somewhere. But one thing that I would really recommend, which I've done because I've done it recently, so if you go to Baghdad, when you go to Baghdad, please make sure to visit the Iraqi Museum. Uh, I went there recently with a group of Americans, and it was absolutely thrilling, really thrilling. If you have time, I'll have pictures on my iPhone and show you. But the, 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 the really wonderful thing about that was as we were there, okay. There's an Iraqi NGO that uh, had spontaneously arranged for a little event that was to celebrate the uh, new Babylonian year. And so there were kids there and a stellar, stellar musician, Iraqi musician who had a composition modeled on the Four Seasons uh, on his violin. I think I have a tape in there somewhere also. That's, you know, so uh, on this, I'm, I'm actually feeling uh, quite hopeful uh, increasingly so because the Minister of Culture in, in Iraq is a first-rate archaeologist. In fact, uh, uh, you should be, as an American, you should be proud of him because he is a uh, PhD from the United the New York, uh, State University of New York at Stony Brook. Uh, and I'm hoping to have him here uh, soon. So on this, on, the, on this, this is uh, something that's really important to us. Um, much needs to be done. There are still like I said, pieces missing, um, I think, that were stolen on purpose. Uh, but much, much has been achieved as well. Mr. Ambassador, we want you to uh, feel free to have any final thoughts, things that uh, you didn't say the first time around, or weren't asked in the questions, or occurred in the process of thinking about some of the questions. Um, you'll be the wrap-up person. Well, so we just ended a war, okay, and um, we're trying to rebuild. And uh, the, I think, country that uh, best negotiated its exit from a war uh, was the United States. Uh, during the World, World War II, it developed a really fast pace of militarization, and then uh, embarked on a very intelligently designed uh, climb down, turning uh, its uh, military force into the greatest engine of economic growth that we've ever seen. Uh, 
through mechanisms like the GI Bill. Okay. And uh, uh, programs engaged by entrepreneurs that served those returning GIs, relied on them for, for, for labor, and provided service uh, like uh, the uh, programs that led to the development of Levitt towns around uh, major American cities. Um, so these are the things that I think we should try to emulate from the United States that would be most uh, helpful to us in Iraq to uh, educate our population, to help uh, you know, transform their energy uh, and their drive and their bravery, I use this word advisedly, uh, into something that would help us develop our and, and diversify uh, our economy uh, to the benefit not only of Iraq, but also of all the region. Well, we've had a physicist <laughs> help us understand things that elude the